Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to The Hidden Gin, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. When I was a kid, there was this family that we were pretty close with and kind of grew up with, in fact. They had four boys, all my age or older, and they reveled in telling us gin stories every time they could get me and my younger siblings alone. They told us about a time when they were traveling in rural South Asia on the way to their ancestral village, bouncing along in a rickety train. It was a hot night, and the train windows were pushed down, so the dust that rose from the tracks created a haze both inside and outside the string of cabins. Things had quieted down, suppers had been unwrapped and eaten. The last of the young boys who were hawking boiled eggs, fried lentils, and thick, sweet, hot tea had passed through the train one final time. Most of the other passengers were asleep, either slumped over a loved one next to them or with their heads thrown back over a seat, their bodies steadily rocking back and forth with the movement of the train. The younger two brothers were likewise asleep, curled up against their mother who had pulled a cotton shawl partially over her face to filter out the dust. Or maybe it was so no one could see her mouth slack and open as she snored. It wasn't unusual to see other passengers with their faces covered by different means, with shawls, blankets, even the occasional burqa. In the cramped quarters, it was one way to have some limited privacy and make sleeping in public a little bit more comfortable. Now, there was one woman in the cabin who was covered entirely in black from head to toe, sitting on the berth across the aisle from the two older brothers who were still wide awake. They were still pretty young, barely in the double digits and only a year apart, which meant they spent most of their waking moments trying to find ways to mess with each other. On that particular night, as the boredom got to them, they traded kicks and pinches and elbows, testing each other. Their goal was to keep from yelping and waking up their mom, who would likely take a slipper to them if they did. They giggled under their breath, still jabbing one another, and then they noticed the woman in black turn her head towards them. The bottom half of her face was covered in the black veil of a burka, but the top half was exposed. Her large black eyes were wide open, lined with coal, staring at them intently. The boys froze under her unblinking gaze. Whether a few moments passed or entire minutes, it's hard to say, but to the brothers, it felt like an eternity. And then, still silent, the woman turned her head the other way to look out the window, and as she did so, she stretched her legs in front of her. Her black gown rose to reveal her feet, which, to the shock and horror of these brothers, were bent completely backwards. I'm Rabia Chaudhary and I'll be your guide into the ancient world of the hidden jinn. Welcome. 
I heard that story or some variation of it countless times from those brothers who swore that they witnessed a woman whose feet were on backwards in the dead of the night on a train to their village. When they told others, elder relatives, what they had seen, they were casually informed that that woman was definitely a jinn. It was a sure sign of a jinn trying to pass as human. They could transform to a certain extent, but their feet, for some reason, still ended up backwards. Or maybe they wanted to keep it that way so they could frighten the unsuspecting with a flash of their feet. Essentially and oftentimes, the jinn manifest themselves to us as they please, shifting into human or animal shapes to enter our dimension, but never revealing what they really look like to us. Which is understandable, because apparently their original forms are so fierce and terrifying, we wouldn't be able to handle it. One legend tells of a jinn that revealed itself to none other than Alexander the Great. It was huge, as large as a building, with seven heads, and every head had two faces, four blazing eyes, a monstrous mouth full of flaming teeth, and the massive nose of a bull. Strangely, though, it had the feet of a duck. A massive duck, but duck feet nonetheless. It's not likely you'll see a djinn in its original form, though. That would just give it away, and they usually don't want that. But there are some manifestations that seem to be most common when it comes to djinn encounters, which will help us recognize a djinn when we see one. But remember, we only see a djinn when it wants us to. And it's also said that they only appear to those who believe in them. Otherwise, our senses are closed to their realm. They can hide from us, and they do. But it's said that they cannot hide from certain animals. Now, there are many cultures that believe animals can see or sense the unseen. Storms on the horizon, for example, or even natural disasters. It's well known and well documented that days before the horrific 2004 tsunami that brutalized South Asian coastlines, local animals were acting out of sorts. From India to Sri Lanka to Indonesia, there were dozens of reports well before the massive waves hit of dogs that refused to go outside, elephants that fled to higher ground, and zoo animals cowered in their shelters. There is nothing necessarily supernatural about any of it. After all, many animals have vastly different ranges of sound and sight that human beings do. And according to indigenous cultures, they're just simply more connected to the natural phenomena around them, which explains why animals may be also more likely to feel or sense jinn, or other creatures we can't see and probably don't want to see. They say to beware when a donkey brays because it's surely seeing a devil. But you don't have to own a donkey to witness the sixth sense animals have for the unseen. Every dog and cat owner has seen, at some point, their furry companion stare with alarm at a point in a room where, apparently, there's nothing to see. Or they'll growl, flatten their ears, crouch at some invisible threat, and then there are the 3 a.m. crazies when cats suddenly begin tearing around the halls, slamming into walls, bursting with a manic energy that doesn't exist at any other part of the day. No one is exactly sure what causes this middle-of-the-night feline mania, and there are some theories about it, but none of them account for why this happens at a time otherwise known as the witching hour. That time of night when black magic is strongest, when the cover of darkness is deepest, and when those of us with a touch of insomnia often spring awake in bed only to see a neon glow from a bedside clock telling us it's 3 a.m. 
Whether or not animals see jinn, we do know this. Sometimes the animals around us are in fact jinn themselves. While shape-shifting jinn have the ability to transform into pretty much any kind of animal, dogs, cats, scorpions, camels, lions, and even insects like beetles, it seems the most common creature you may come across that could be a hidden jinn is a snake. And it's no coincidence that Adam and Eve were tricked by a serpent in the garden. The serpent was the devil himself, disguised. And the devil, in some traditions, is in fact a jinn. There's a story from 17th century Egypt in which a famous holy man named Al-Haridi had died, but people believed that he had returned, reincarnated as a large snake. The snake had made the holy man's shrine on the Nile River its home, staying curled up at all times in the crevice of some rocks near the grave. In his lifetime, Al-Haridi was known to be a healer, a pious man with miraculous powers to cure the sick. But after his death, those powers seemed to have become vested in the great serpent that guarded his shrine. And as long as that snake was there, the miracles continued. The locals had different theories about Al-Haridi and the snake. It could have been that he was never a human being to begin with, but instead that he was a benevolent jinn who transformed himself into a human so he could help heal people. Then, after living a human life and dying a human death, he turned into the giant snake to continue to bless those that came to the shrine for help. Interestingly, Coptic Christians in the region had a different take on Al-Haridi. They were well aware of his miracles, but they didn't think he was a kindly jinn. Instead, they believed that he was the incarnation of the demon king Ashmedai, the same Ashmedai that King Solomon enslaved to build his temple along with legions of other jinn. Regardless, it seems everyone on all sides did agree to one thing. That snake was definitely Al-Haridi. The animal manifestations aren't always perfect. Sometimes the shape-shifting will result in beastly hybrids, serpents with dozens of arms and legs, or creatures with canine teeth, heads like birds, and horse-like hooves. Then there are those jinn who don't quite come together at all, the Nesnas. The Nesnas appear as half-formed human beings, with half a head, one arm, one leg, half a torso, and half a face, which may be positioned anywhere on its body. Some say these malformed creatures only inhabit the wilderness of Yemen, and others say they can be found on desolate islands in the South China Sea. They can't speak, having only half the vocal cords necessary, but they can make strange, sad, guttural sounds, rather fitting for their disposition. That's because the Nasnas are weak jinn. They're terrified of human beings instead of the other way around. They flee when people get too close, hopping away with a quickness on one leg, escaping as fast as possible, lest they get captured. And they better get away because in some parts they're hunted by locals, not just to kill them, but to devour them. Because apparently the flesh of the Nesnas is reportedly delicious and sweet. If Nesnas are the weaklings in the jinn realm, Towards the other end of the spectrum, there is a dangerous, shape-shifting jinn that you want to avoid at all costs. This jinn has the ability to constantly and terrifyingly keep transforming in order to confuse and daze its victims. And that jinn is called the ghoul. That's right, ghoul. The word we've all used at some point to describe someone unpleasant is actually the Arabic word for a very specific kind of jinn sometimes taking the shape of several animals at once, 
reported at times to have the head of a cat and the tongue of a dog, other times appearing in their monstrous forms, hunched and hairless, razor-sharp teeth and snake-like tongues, mottled skin, and cavernous dead eyes. Ghouls inhabit the most desolate places, keeping as far as possible from human civilization. They lurk in deserts and cemeteries, where they hide among ruins, biding their time for people passing by. People who are likely to disappear forever if they make that unfortunate encounter. When a hapless soul does stumble across their path, ghouls will entrance them all the way to their deaths by repeatedly transforming from one thing to another, shape-shifting with speed from one hideous creature to another, confounding their victims. This way, the ghoul drives their victim mad before making their kill to satisfy their hunger for human flesh. Ghouls are said to be among some of the oldest jinn, ancient and evil. They are so powerful that other jinns serve them, and sometimes human beings also become their slaves, both willingly and unwillingly. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. A medieval Egyptian folktale relates that the ghouls came into existence in the land of Yemen through the unholy union of the smoke from a fire, the seed of a wolf, and human seed inside a woman's body. How all of these things found their way to the womb, I'm not sure, and I'm also not sure I want to know. Nonetheless, the ghouls that were birthed haunted the legendary Valley of the Ghouls in Yemen, an actual place. These beastly siblings were eventually slayed by a king but there are, of course, legions more. Some of those legions reside in the Cave of Ghouls, located in Egypt, in Mount Barca. A story from the late 1800s tells the tale of a man traveling with a group of people past this cave. He fell behind his party, and as he wandered along looking for them, a woman mysteriously appeared out of nowhere on the mountainside. She was beautiful, as women often are in such stories, and she stood in the man's path, giving him two choices— he could either sleep with her, or she would kill him. She was, as you may have realized, a ghoul. Now you can easily guess which choice the man took, and after their liaison, he was allowed to go his way. But a year later, the same woman appeared before the man, this time with a baby girl, his daughter. She left the child with him and disappeared. The man raised the little girl, and eventually she married a man from his tribe and went on to have children. 
Now, before we go on with the story, let's pause here to talk about the particular kind of jinn that gave birth to this little girl. That beautiful woman outside the cave of ghouls was a particularly dangerous type of ghoul called a sila. And unlike the beastly forms that other ghouls take, the sila often takes the form of a seductive woman. The sila stalks men and often not only eats her victims, but she toys with them first, making them dance and scamper around full of terror before finally putting them out of their misery. In order to trap her prey, the sila often pretends to be a woman traveling alone and seduces lone male travelers until they're so far off the beaten path they have no hope of escaping, just like what happened in our Cave of Ghoul story. And killing a sila is no easy task for a number of reasons. But if there's any creature capable of it, it's the one that ghouls are unable to transform into, the wolf. Wolves hold a special place in old Arab customs, as symbols of protection. It's said that the wolf is so powerful against malevolent jinn that wolf teeth or even a wolf's eye are used as charms to ward off evil. And mothers have long sung lullabies invoking the name of the wolf to scare off evil spirits from children. You see, the wolf is the only animal that ghouls are actually scared of. And they have reason to be scared because wolves actively hunt the most dangerous ghoul, the sila, that temptress that lures unassuming men to their deaths. A 13th century polymath by the name of Zachariah Al-Kazwini described that hunt like this. The wolf sometimes hunts her at night and then eats her. As he tears into her, she raises her voice saying, Save me, the wolf is eating me. But once a wolf has a hold of his prey, no one will rescue her and ultimately... Sila is devoured by the beast. Now, no wolf appears in the Cave of Ghoul story, however, and unfortunately the daughter of the Sila had to be disposed of in another way. Because according to the tale, after the daughter of the Sila was raised, married off, and had her own children, her father made a discovery that worried him deeply. One night, he came across a grave that had been violated, dug up, its deceased inhabitant unearthed, and parts of the body eaten. The father worried that maybe his daughter had something to do with it, given her origins, and because he knew that ghouls primarily feasted on human flesh, dead or alive. He hurried to his son-in-law and told him his fears. So the young man began keeping an eye on his wife and discovered that she was indeed making nightly outings. He followed her one night as she crept out of the house to the local cemetery, dug up a grave, and began to feast on the body. He was horrified. And that night when she returned to their bed, he killed her, crushing her to death. But their children lived on, married and multiplied. And to this day, in the area close to the cave of ghouls, the descendants of that couple still survive, and they are known as the Al-Guwila. Tales of ghouls are spread far and wide, not just geographically, but also throughout time. Long before the cave of ghouls story, Nearly six centuries prior, in fact, an epic travelogue was written by a contemporary romance author by the name of Rustichello da Pisa. He had had the fortune of being detained for two years in a prison with an explorer who regaled him with fantastic stories of his travels and adventures. Da Pisa compiled the stories together in a volume called, quote, The Book of the Marvels of the World, Each Yarn More Amazing Than the Last. You see, this explorer that da Pisa had been detained with described crossing entire continents, 
from Constantinople to Baghdad, through the magnificent Karakoram mountain range onto Beijing, and circling through the South China Sea, the Bay of Bengal, and up the coast of the Arabian Sea off the eastern shore of Africa. And this explorer spent nearly two decades in the court of Kublai Khan, the grandson of the great Genghis Khan, serving the Mongol emperor, and he had seen and heard it all. This explorer, well, it was none other than Marco Polo. And that book, well, it's better known in our part of the world as The Travels of Marco Polo. Polo's travels along the Silk Road took him at one point to a vast desert at the center of trading routes between China, Tibet, and Turkestan. The desert was so vast that some said it took a month to cross it at its narrowest point, and it took a year to cross it at its most wide. And while there were watering holes dotted throughout, the desert was otherwise devoid of life. No animals, no people, nothing that could be hunted and eaten. And yet, it wasn't completely empty. There is a marvelous thing related of this desert, which is that when travelers are on the move by night and one of them chances to lag behind or to fall asleep or the like, when he tries to gain his company again, he will hear spirits talking and will suppose them to be his comrades. Sometimes the spirits will call him by name, and thus shall a traveler oftentimes be led astray, so that he never finds his party. And in this way many have perished. Sometimes the stray travelers will hear, as it were, the tramp and hum of a great cavalcade of people, away from the real line of road. And taking this to be their own company, they will follow the sound. And when day breaks, they will find that a cheat has been put on them, and that they are in an ill plight. Even in the daytime, one hears those spirits talking, and sometimes you shall hear the sound of a variety of musical instruments, and still more commonly, the sound of drums. Polo had also heard of a terrifying monster found in the wilderness of Afghanistan and Iran, the famed and feared Ghul e Beban, meaning the ghoul of the waste. The ghoul was huge, dreadful to behold, and lurked in the wastelands of Central Asia, gobbling up travelers right off of their horses. Now, Marco Polo had not confessed to seeing this ghoul himself, but he had heard it referred to many times by locals he met in his travels. And while he seemed to believe in the desert spirits that lured travelers astray, Polo didn't put much stock in the Rolebeban stories. It could be that he thought, as others did, that the ghouls of the desert wastelands were simply a projection of the fear even the bravest soul feels when facing the desolation of a vast, deserted place. The isolation, the silence, the nothingness for miles in every direction could be enough to disorient the most level-headed among us. And in that condition, howling dust storms could both look and sound like a beast rising into the sky. For the travelers that survived those journeys, fantastic tales to tell would certainly be a badge of honor. And for those that didn't, well, it might be kinder to think they were just snatched up by a ghoul than the alternative, that they just couldn't cut it. Or the tales could be precautionary, a warning to those seeking to set off into the wilderness, a threat of imminent danger to those who didn't stick close to the tribe, which is just what the lesson from another ghoul story, this one from the 15th century in Baghdad, also just might be. In this story, the son of a wealthy merchant falls in love with the daughter of a poor old wise man, against his father's wishes. And that, dear listeners, is the disobedience and rebelliousness that this story may have been crafted to prevent. 
Nonetheless, the story goes on that the father eventually relented and allowed his son to marry the beautiful young girl, and their marriage was celebrated with all the ceremony and bling that was expected of the wealthy family. The son was elated with his new bride, but was disturbed that she would never eat. She would just leave her food untouched at every meal. He shrugged it off. Maybe she was just shy in her new home with this new family and didn't feel comfortable eating in front of them. But one night, the new groom awakened to find himself alone in bed. His beautiful wife was nowhere to be found. He stayed awake, waiting for her, and she didn't return till an hour before the sun rose, creeping quietly back into their bed. The next night, he decided he would only pretend to sleep to see if she again left their bed, and she did. He followed her at a distance out of the house and all the way to a cemetery, where he saw her step into a large tomb with an open door. He cautiously entered after her, only to behold a ghastly sight. A circle of ghouls feasted on bloody, decomposing corpses, and among them was his lovely young bride, munching away with them. The man hurried home terrified, but said nothing to his wife when she returned to their bed hours later. The next day, when she again refused to eat, he finally couldn't take it anymore. He screamed that he knew her secret, that she fasted all day so she could feast every night with the ghouls. The wife silently rose from the table and retreated to their bedroom, where she waited for her groom. He eventually joined her, uneasily getting into bed, neither of them saying a word, both silent and tense. That night, she didn't leave her husband's bed at all. Instead of sneaking out for her midnight meal, she waited patiently for the first signs of slumber to overtake him. Then she pounced on her hapless groom, teeth bared towards his neck, attempting to draw and drink his blood. He awoke immediately and fought back, struggling to subdue her. The fight was vicious. She had a shocking super strength, but ultimately he was able to kill her with a blow to the head. The next day he buried her, but she didn't stay buried. Three days later, she arose from the dead and returned to her formal marital bed to once again try and suck her husband's blood. He fled and escaped her, and the next day returned to her tomb where he found her cold, dead body. This time, he took no chances. He burned her corpse to ashes and scattered them in a river. And it worked. She never returned. Now, you may have noticed that while this woman was fond of eating corpses, as ghouls do... She was also pretty focused on sinking her teeth into her husband's throat. So if this particular ghoul sounds very much like a vampire, there's good reason. The connection here runs thick as blood. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. 
to save. Visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Thou shalt not eat the blood of any flesh at all, because the life of the flesh is in the blood, and whosoever eateth shall be cut off. Leviticus spells it out pretty clearly that consuming blood, for God-fearing believers, is not just a no-no. It means being condemned to exile, to being cut off from family and community and from God himself, and driven into darkness because of their bloodlust. Well, that's where we find vampires, hiding, shunned from the rest of the world. In the world of the jinn, much like the vampires of our imaginations, there are some who are driven by pure bloodlust. The first of those are the palis. The palis are jinn associated with the desert, and they have a peculiar way of satisfying their cravings. They have what you could call kind of a foot fetish. The palis will wait until the intended victim is asleep, and then lick the bottoms of their feet until they bleed. It's said that these jinn aren't very bright or even really too dangerous, but the fact that they can manage their feet licking without waking anyone up does take a certain level of skill. Luckily, it's not too hard to outwit this kind of jinn. All you have to do is sleep feet to feet with another person so nothing can get to the bottom of your foot. Apparently, the palis either don't know or don't care that they could get blood from other parts of your body. The palis may give you a good giggle, but there's nothing funny about another blood-sucking creature found in Hindu folklore that's not only believed to be a jinn, but some call the original vampire. Hundreds of years before Vlad the Impaler came onto the scene in Romania, the Vetala already existed in Hindu folklore and tradition. A terrifying, evil species of jinn, the Vetala were thought to inhabit the reanimated corpses of the dead. They often haunt charnel grounds, which are above-ground sites where the dead are left to either putrefy or be cremated. They are super strong, super smart, and super hungry for the blood that sustains them. One of the most famous stories about the Vetala is found in an ancient Sanskrit book hailing from the 8th century called the Vetala Paichisi, which means the 25 stories of Vetala. The story revolves around the famous Indian king Vikram Aditya, who was an actual historical figure from the 1st century that reached mythological status over the centuries. There are different interpretations and versions of the story, but the basic premise is this. The mighty king was asked by a sorcerer to help capture a Vetala that could be found hanging from a tree in a graveyard. An 1870 adaptation of the story by the British Orientalist Sir Richard Francis Burton recounts the encounter of King Vikram and the vampire like this. Approaching the tree, he sat there for a while to observe the body, which hung head downwards from a branch a little above him. Its eyes, which were wide open, were of a greenish brown and never twinkled. Its hair was also brown, and brown was its face. Its body was thin and ribbed like a skeleton or a bamboo framework, and as it held on to a bow like a flying fox by the toe tips, its drawn muscles stood out as if they were ropes of coin. Blood, it appeared to have none, and as the Raja handled its skin, it felt icy cold and clammy as might a snake. The only sign of life was the whisking of a ragged little tail much resembling a goat's. King Vikram climbed the tree and sliced the branch the beast hung from with his sword. He scrambled down the tree trunk to get a hold of the creature, but it slipped out of his grasp like a worm and levitated with legs up, 
and once again grabbed a tree branch with its toes. The Vitala swung back and forth from the branch, laughing in the king's bewildered face. The king tried again, and again, and again to cut down the beast and capture him, but each time the Vitala rose back up into the tree, unbothered. Finally, the Vitala, growing tired of the game, asked the king, Who are you and what do you want? His royal highness responded that he was Raja Vikram the Great, king of the land, and it was his mission to take him back to the sorcerer as he had promised to do. Hearing this, the Vitala suddenly became coy and agreed to accompany the king if only he was allowed to tell him stories during the journey, and in those stories, pose riddles with this condition. Every time the king answered one of the Vitala's riddles, the demon would escape and return to his tree. But as long as the king remained silent, either out of humility or because he couldn't answer the question, the Vitala would remain in his custody. Now, this might seem kind of counterintuitive and contradictory to most such stories that involved conditions with riddles, but you see, this was a test of the king's pride, and he accepted the test. And so they took off, and the vampire told King Vikram story after story after story, 24 in all, and in each story, a riddle. And every time, the king, unable to control his ego and pride, would respond to the Vitala's riddles with an answer. And every time he did, the Vitala would slip away, journeying back to his tree in the graveyard, and the king would have to start all over. Finally, after hearing the 25th story and riddle, King Vikram pressed his lips together, refusing to answer. This overjoyed the Vitala, who then revealed a secret to him. The sorcerer, he said, was no friend of the king. Indeed, he was his enemy in disguise, out for the king's blood, and the Vitala himself was in fact a trap the sorcerer had placed for the king. Once revealing the secret, the Vitala extracted itself from the body it inhabited, letting out a slow, low hissing sound as it left. Thanks to the secret spilled by the Vitala, King Vikram was able to trick and kill the sorcerer, thereby growing in power himself. And all this because he was able to, just once, show a little humility. Now, the Vitala isn't the only vampirish creature in Indian folklore. In fact, there are lots of them. The stories about their origins and how they terrorize people vary, and you can hear all those echoes in European vampire lore. But most of them have a few things in common. That you'll find vampires lingering and living among the human dead, in graveyards and crematoriums, that they yearn for human blood, and that, like the jinn woman in the train at the beginning of this episode, you'll find that their feet are turned backwards. As you may have guessed it by now, there's no one definitive way to identify a jinn, but you'll probably know one when you see it. The only time you might not, however, is when a jinn takes what I think is the most dangerous and sinister form, transforming into someone you know, which has been known to happen. Jinn can and will take on the appearance of not just any human, but an actual human who's already living, or sometimes a human who's very much dead. They can then play tricks on the friends and loved ones of that person, lying to them, persuading them to do things or believe things they shouldn't. Imagine how easy it could be to mislead someone that way, and how much trouble it could get an innocent party in. But then there is that one way to make sure the person you're dealing with is really who they say they are. Because for some reason, the jinn can shapeshift to trick you, but the one thing they can't change is their feet. 
Their feet will either be backwards or they'll be cloven hooves, like in the story of the beautiful Queen of Sheba, who was reportedly born of a jinn mother and a human father. But even she couldn't shake the jinn genes. And in some accounts, while she was stunningly beautiful, she did, in fact, have hairy goat legs, hooves and all. Now, we'll close out with the story closer to home and closer in time to us from New Mexico. According to the book The Vengeful Jinn, in 1993, the uncle of the Cuesta, New Mexico police chief was driving home late one night on a lonely highway. A woman appeared out of the darkness, walking on the side of the road by herself, dressed, strangely enough, in a red evening gown. There was no telling where she had come from. The highway was empty, and he hadn't passed any abandoned cars. He pulled over and offered her a ride, and she hopped into his pickup truck quietly, not saying a word. After a few silent minutes, the man turned to his passenger to ask her what she was doing in the middle of nowhere that late at night, and was horrified to find her dress had fallen open, revealing legs like a goat and cloven hooves. But before he could react or even scream, she poof, vanished into thin air. I guess the lesson to all of us is then, when in doubt, check the feet. Thanks for joining us this week. Next week, we'll be back to take you another step into the world of the hidden jinn. Until then, remember, we are not alone. If you loved today's episode, I'm going to ask you a big favor. Please stop by iTunes and leave me a rating and a review, even if it's just one short sentence. Not only is that how other listeners discover the podcast, but it's also what keeps the podcast going. And for every thousand reviews that I get on iTunes, I'll release another Patreon episode absolutely free. That's right, we're on Patreon. So if you're a gin enthusiast, check out the companion Patreon series at patreon.com slash hidden gin. Again, that's patreon.com slash hidden gin. And remember, gin is spelled D-J-I-N-N. That's where you're going to find an amazing series of interviews between me, scholars, experts, artists, historians, and everyday lay people who have had extraordinary experiences with gin. And everybody can check out the first episode absolutely free. It's me and my husband sharing our gin stories, and it was a lot of fun. And if you have any gin stories, well, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at thehiddengin at gmail.com. Once again, it's thehiddengin, gin with a D, at gmail.com. And you might just hear back from me, or you might hear your story on the show. And finally, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle The Hidden Gin. There you can tweet, post, Insta, DM me. I'd love to hear from all of you, and believe me, I read every single message. The Hidden Gin is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The podcast is written and hosted by Rabia Chaudhry and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Music for the show was provided by Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. Our theme song was created by Patrick Cortez. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.